0: Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Maybe you're imagining things, or maybe that red car has been following you for the last five blocks. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr.
1: On today's podcast, I'm joined by Rolf Moet larsen Rolf is a senior fellow at the Belfast Center at the Harvard Kennedy School. He was the director of intelligence and counterintelligence for three years at the U.S. Department of Energy, and prior to that, he served for 23 years in the CIA. On this episode, we discuss future intelligence threats with a particular focus on climate change and its implications for national security. If you enjoy enjoying this podcast, you can support it in a few ways. First of all, please do leave a review on your podcast app. All reviews help us gain more listeners as it raises the awareness of the podcast. I don't know if you know, but all podcast apps are algorithm-based, and the more interaction the show gets, the more listeners it attracts. You can also become a friend of the podcast through Patreon. For £3 a month, you can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show. You'll get a free copy of my film, The Dry Cleaner. Also, you can join us on Twitter. You can directly interact with me by going to @SecretsAndSpies. And lastly, you can watch my short spy film, The Dry Cleaner, which was my first attempt at original spy fiction. It's now available on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. It comes in, I think, around about $2.99 without further ado let's get going i really enjoyed this episode i think rolf is a fantastic speaker i think he's a fascinating guest and i found
0: it really interesting so i hope you do too and i hope you enjoy this one the opinions expressed by guests on secrets and spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast Rolf, thank you so
1: much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Please, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and experience?
2: Yeah, I'm a career government servant. uh, Age 17, went to West Point after I graduated, served uh, six years in the military as an army captain, then joined CIA, Yeah, spent 25 years in in the agency, and my last three years in the Department of Energy as the head of intelligence and counterintelligence uh, for DOE in the U.S.,
1: Fantastic. And am I right in believing you were made persona non grata in Russia? Is that right?
2: Yeah, that was an unfortunate consequence of work. Uh, nothing I did personally, but uh, yeah, in in 1996 for uh, alleged... Uh, espionage activity against Russian intelligence yeah. officers. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and when
1: discussing US intelligence gathering, we typically look at the CIA and other military intelligence services, yet other government branches also have their own intelligence gathering capabilities with different priorities. Now you've worked both with the CIA and the Department of Energy. Can you talk to us a little bit about your time at the Department of Energy and why there are so many intelligence gathering services in the US government?
2: Yeah, the way I like to describe it, it is that the uh, it, it, and and perhaps you know given an eighty billion billion dollar budget and and seventeen different intelligence entities, for most countries in the world, they would look at that and sort of shake their head. So I do have a little bit of that reaction. I think perhaps we should <laughs> parry it down a bit. But the reason we have so many is I liken it to playing, uh, whether it's soccer or American football or something, mm. there are different positions. Each each agency or entity represents uh, different capabilities. So f- to contrast CIA and uh, Department of Energy, which are two of those 17, uh, CIA is the is the go-to human... Spying or organization. Now, of course, today they do things like computer operations and things. But, but it's as the essence of CIA's unique value added is its ability to recruit and handle spies and occasionally do covert action, which is executive action that the president authorizes personally. Usually, it's something like drone strikes or interrogation or something like that. Whereas Department yeah. of Energy. Is a, is a, I is, I don't I hesitate to use the word nichey. Uh, they don't like that, but but it's it's a it's a basically and it's it stands to reason. It's a science-based intelligence service. So things that involve science yeah. and technology, surprise, nuclear weapons, biological weapons, uh, increasingly energy and climate-related global security questions, because Department of Energy has some of the world's fastest supercomputers and phenomenal analytic capability, particularly at a very high scientific mm. level. So I've used to make. Uh, i done nuclear-related threats my entire life, and uh, CIA is very good, very good at that. But you can't really say they're better than the people who actually build bombs, design and build bombs. So the analysts at the Department of Energy offer that unique, different perspective of the people who actually have hands-on. So that's a good way to look at it. And then we have things like the FBI, of course, which is both counterintelligence and law enforcement. We have National Security Agency, which does signals intelligence and various others, Uh, for example, Drug Enforcement Agency. So most of those agencies and entities have, I call them entities because they're not all agencies, obviously. Ours was not in Department of Energy. But they all kind of have a unique role. Yeah. Uh, even the State Department has the Intelligence and Research Bureau, which does more policy-based intelligence uh, analysis. So, And I have great respect for all of them, uh, even though, as I said, perhaps we've gotten a little bloated over the decades.
1: But each one has his own unique thing, so it's, it's good to know that. Thank you. You've mentioned that intelligence today is sitting in one of the most important ages of its own history, possibly since World War II. And you've also said that the role of intelligence services needs to be re-examined. Can you talk to a little bit about all this.
2: Yes, the reason I make that fairly... Um Dramatic statement, and I'm not really prone to making them. But I, I think historically we are there because of the w- where the world is, not because of any particular uh, mm. perspective I offer. But if you look at it historically, the reason why CIA was created was to follow its predecessor entity in the United States called the Office of Strategic Services during World War II, which essentially provided intelligence to the United States during the war against fascism so after the war it was no longer fascism in a sense it it was communism and it was totalitarianism it was the superpower rivalry and we needed a different agency and so cia was created specifically with all the conditions in mind that existed in 19 you know after the after world war ii so if you look now you you move fast forward from say the mid 40s till 75 years later um we're at another for the first time, I think, you could probably argue another phase was when the Soviet Union collapsed, but I think you know we, the world hadn't yet metastasized the way it has now after, at least we didn't weren't aware of it after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So we've kind of been muddling through the last, say, 30 years. Now we're at the phase where I think the new world condition has sort of become clear. You have no longer the superpower paradigm There's no longer really the same sort of ideological basis for struggle that defines how intelligence agencies should define their mission and work. And most importantly, we've had two major developments that really 9-11 showcase, which is I call it the rise, Well, actually my, my mentor at Harvard, Graham Allison, the first dean at Harvard, coined the phrase, and I've uh, stolen it. Uh, he's aware of that and I think supportive. Called this the rise of the super-enabled individual. So we're no longer competing yep. with, with uh, states. And superpower, superpower, but then there were rogue states. And now there are groups that emulate states and want to have the power of states. And on top of that, the most important overlay, even on individuals, is this idea of Mother Nature or threats that are caused by other, you know, human beings for sure, but have global stability consequences like climate change, mm. uh, infectious diseases, regional conflicts that are caused by mass refugees and things like that that we never really had to deal with in the in the more orderly world, in a sense of the Cold War and its aftermath.
1: Mm. Forgive me for this, but um when you mentioned the hyper enabled individual it kinda makes me think about Ian Fleming and how his work that used to feel a bit out there is starting to feel more more realistic or maybe prophetic.
2: <laughs> oh abs- absolutely. Absolutely. The idea of uh the what what was his name?
1: Oh Blofeld or someone like that, yeah.
2: <laughs> uh yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. That world is not looking so um so strange to us anymore, and, and very interesting. I've said this to a few in, you know, insiders and friends. I said, you know, the idea of a James Bond nowadays doesn't look as ridiculous as it did when I used to enjoy those movies and books, because the hmm. idea of being out there and, and findable, which Bond always was, of course. All the bad guys always found them, usually at the poker table or the roulette wheel. Yes. And, but that, 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 <laughs> that notion is no longer far-fetched. We're increasingly seeing intelligence services out in the light. You know, whether it's C, you know, uh, congratulating Bill Burns, the new head of CIA on Twitter, or or or, or uh, Yossi Cohen, the head of Mossad, proudly trumpeting the Israeli raid in Tehran where they stole the Iranian nuclear archives, an incredibly dangerous and secret uh, operation that they pulled off a few years ago. Well, we used to never see intelligence services in the light like they are today. Part of that is because, again, they need to be there. They're not. This is an instinctive thing from the, the high practitioners, I call them, the people at the edge of the profession who are pushing us forward, understand that we can no longer do what we did in the shadows. And even secrecy, as sacrosanct as we've held that for decades, is no longer the ruling criteria for the impact that our work makes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do you think we're going to, sorry, it's going a little bit off topic. Do you think we might see a kind of rise of intelligence services going more in the kind of Bellingcat direction?
2: Yes. I mean, one reason we've seen the growth of the, the private intelligence and, and not just the Bellingcats, but so many mm. corporations now have, have significant intelligence capacity, not security, but more the mm. proactive, predictive, uh, mm. getting out in front of risks that they're going to over, uh, encounter in the course of their business. And they're hiring uh, business professionals from all. i the world i had this kind of a romanticized image of future intelligence where you know i'm actually and i've said this even to my russian colleagues i'll call them you know friends uh, <laughs> that you know i i see a day in the not so distant future where we're not only going to be spying on one another but less frequently doing that and more frequently having to pool our expertise and experience together to deal with common threats and 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 i and i think that's that day is here we just don't quite appreciate it yet yeah
1: yeah what are the future concerns that you have from an intelligence point of view that the cia and the u.s government should be thinking about
2: well, foremost among them, and, and uh, there's really no question in my mind on this, is uh, climate change. And, and it's mm. not the science, it's not the policy, or it's supporting policy. Uh, I, I like to start with the thought that if for those who are skeptical that intelligence has a role to play in something like this, I say, well, does intelligence have a role to give the president, as it's been its fundamental purpose, uh, the president a decision advantage in making better policy and being more prepared to deal with unanticipated problems. We, yeah. we used to call that in the old Soviet days, foresight and early warning, of whether it was a nuclear attack or an incident that might occur that will exacerbate U.S.-Russian relations. Well, today that's being created by nature, uh, and we need to be poised to deal with things like uh, states that fail because of water wars, because of conflicts arising from inability to feed their people because of re- waves of refugees that occur because of the warming planet or cooling planet uh from uh, natural events that begin to destabilize the world in various ways and if there's a unique capability within intelligence i mean give it to all the existing entities that may be better positioned to provide that support to policymakers around the world not just in the US but internationally and elsewhere but if not then Intelligence does have some unique capabilities. We have liaison partnerships globally that we've been honing since World War II uh, through trust and experience and interaction, uh, and use those relationships for this purpose to combine, find ways to do things multilaterally. That's another challenge that we've always been trying to do ourselves or bilaterally with other countries. Now we need to find ways to share the burden, to share our understanding of the risks, to uh, multilaterally cooperate even if that's in parallel as opposed to being sitting around i'm 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 big i'm still a big skeptic of taking you know, 20 countries and putting them all around a table and calling that cooperation i think that's the problem with multilateralism it's that's not the right paradigm for pursuing it but that's a uh, now i'm getting in the weeds but the essence of <laughs> my answer to your question is Is uh, climate change is my first. The other one, which relates in a way, is how we deal with pandemics and infectious disease. Being able to discern what's a man-caused or human-caused outbreak versus a natural outbreak. Be able to understand the epidemiology of the diseases better as they evolve through. Changes in temperature and conditions in countries to understand where the next outbreaks are coming, because the response to something, even like you might say, well, that's the CDC in the United States or elsewhere, they need to worry about. Yeah, they need to worry about that. The science of it and the and and the, but we in intelligence need to worry about how do we respond to it? How do we get on top of it if it occurs? How do we get on the next Ebola crisis in terms of the actions that that now take the form of threatening our security? through international air travel or things that happen at borders or people coming into countries or identifying where the outbreaks are occurring part of that is an intelligence and security function and the final one i'll mention is wmd i mean weapons of mass destruction uh clearly we've crossed a threshold where we need to worry about nuclear and biological terrorism that's no longer just what we used to say after 9 11 we used to warn everybody: this isn't just an Islamist problem. an extreme, extremist terrorist in the in the Islamic world. This is now something we need to worry about coming from the far right
1: mm.
2: in the U.S., for example, from militia groups that now seek these weapons to give them a, an edge when they want to take over the capital the next time, mm. <laughs> mm. or 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 uh, even from the far left. I grew up in Germany, so to speak, with the Bader Meinhof gang, the Red Army faction. In fact, Bader and Meinhof hang themselves in a German prison when I was living in Germany in the 70s. And, and that yeah. echo far left movement today that's peaceful could potentially become radicalized to the point they become terrorists of the future. Again, I'm not accusing or, or asserting that this is going to happen, but that's intelligence work in a nutshell is thinking about these kinds of problems and anticipating where we're going to see the next threats.
1: Yeah, yeah. One question on the WMD topic: since the Iraq War, there's quite a few people in the in the public who are quite skeptical about claims of WMD. What would you sort of say to people who have any suspicions and beliefs that it's all made up by sort of George Bush or something?
2: Well, I never dismiss it because I dealt with it, uh, and I had to deal with it on a on a recurring basis after nine eleven, and to mm. this day, I accept that. That skepticism as being legitimate. My response to it is that first I, you know, this isn't going to assuage everybody. Of course, when I say <laughs> this, but I, I, I would say everything I stand for personally and my professionalism and everything I've worked on that 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 it was not politicized. And and I, I'm trying to say tell that story in in terms of much more specificity. You know how President Bush. Uh, Dick Cheney and all of whom I've interacted with extensively on this actually dealt with the problem of WMD to show that um, you know w- w- one can say whatever one wants to say about the decision to invade Iraq, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I myself have characterized that as a intelligence failure, and that mm-hmm. CIA cannot uh, avoid that. That uh, judgment for Mm. having gotten that wrong. We didn't get the WMD wrong. We we have the stories We have the evidence. We have the facts. We know what we pursued. We never hyped the threat Um, I've had foreign services uh, not just uh, Russians or or others But even the British and the French and and Australians and others question uh, On the basis of what you just said what I provide Mm. and I've let the facts speak for themselves. We actually Mm. thwarted threats Uh, we identified plots we found people who were involved. Fortunately, uh, I don't think they reached a point of fruition where they obtained, you know, that one bomb, that one nuclear bomb with potential, say, uh, yield-producing device or a large-scale biological weapon, for example, Mm. we managed to thwart that. We managed to get in front of that. And I think that's a success story as opposed to being a myth. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that.
1: So I would like to look at climate change, I think, that's the main focus of our chat today. And um, you've been a pioneer in trying to make the US government and the US intelligence community take a, a more serious look at climate change. This may be a silly question, but what was it that sort of drew you to the importance of climate change, especially when so many people have not taken it so seriously?
2: I don't think it's a silly question at all. It's for me that maybe the essential question is I'm at a phase, both of my professional career where I've achieved and, and been fortunate to have been given opportunities that have exceeded my wildest expectations. Mm. So I no longer have really any personal ambitions in my profession. I I like to think I'm good at what I do. I have a sense of seeing into the future. And so for me, it's about my grandkids. I have seven grandkids. I don't just mean them, of course. I'm I'm answering the question by saying it's about the future. It's about Mm. the the future of the world. Uh, I have no question in my mind that this is real. I mean, that whole discussion to the extent it became a ridiculous political issue in the United States is, 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 is very, tragic, actually. Yeah. But but taking that aside, that that if we're talking to sensible people who we'll all understand this is happening right now as we speak, um, then the only question is, should we be devoting All these people, capabilities, and resources that I respect so highly that I've seen work so effectively to safeguard national and global security, do we devote all of that just to terrorists, proliferators, uh, state-to-state rivalries, or we start to to actually get in front of something we're going to be dealing with throughout this entire century, which is the Mm. slow destabilization of global security because of climate change? And I, I'm actually at an alarm, alarmist, urgent, you know, phase of my messaging now. I started this, uh, say, quixotic quest maybe 15 mm. years ago uh, when I was in DOE. First came to DOE. I started it almost after visiting the laboratories and seeing the computer modeling and seeing the capabilities we had, and saying, "Oh my goodness." these things need to be applied right now to ensuring our policymakers have a better idea what's coming down the pike. Mm.
1: And what are your thoughts on the implications of climate change? What do you think we will see? And I suppose maybe also adds that, when do you think we might start seeing those things?
2: Well, we're certainly seeing it now. I like to say anecdotally that that a few years ago, I'm, I'm part of a group that Harvard sponsors called the Elba Group, which is a U.S. Mm. and Russian generals, uh, five of us, five of them, and we meet every year. Uh, we've been doing it during the pandemic via Zoom, but uh, we have intentions to meet in the fall in person again, as uh, continuing a 12-year tradition. Same people from the start, which is really remarkable, all at this sort mm. of general level. We met in Reykjavik uh, three years ago. And for the first time, we put climate change on the table as a national security issue that affects both US and Russia. And, and the mm. Icelanders were wonderful. The foreign minister met us, the, the uh, experts up there, including the Russian ambassador, who's the permanent member of the uh, council and Iceland came and gave us presentations and just to explore what you asked, which is how does this affecting us now? It's not just a matter of opening up sea lanes (laughs) across the North that's and and have some economic advantages. What are the, what are the rivalistic aspects of it? How are the U S and Russia, for example, going to confront one another increasingly in that part of the world Mm -hmm. and the other countries that form the countries that share, share some boundaries of it, just the North pole itself. Is a dramatic illustration of all the issues that are surrounding, um, surrounding your your question. And I'd say the essence of it could boil down our full day discussion on this to, is to to really one thought: can one question? Can we work through the many things we're going to confront because of the warming of the Arctic, uh, as? in cooperation or as competitors or both. And a large part of determining what degree of confrontation versus cooperation occurs up there is going to be working through a common understanding of what threats and risks we face there. Uh, not just the opportunities. Mm.
1: I've seen you mention in other interviews that there's a possibility we'll see water wars in our lifetime. And I was wondering if you could just sort of talk to us a bit about that and about some of the other dangers uh, on that sort of level.
2: Yeah, so I I want to insert at this point in the discussion something I'm Mm. always uh, quick to do, which is I'm not an expert on climate change uh, and even the science of it. I'm I'm a layperson, like everyone listening to this uh, in terms of understanding the nature of the problem, which in intelligence is not really what we need to do it's like when i need an expert i go to if i want an expert on nuclear weapons i'm not the person i that tells the president i go to someone in the our national laboratories or in cia it's the same with climate change so the first thing i say is i I use my experience just to sort of intuit where we're going if you i lived in jordan for three years between uh, 2011 and 14 and uh, in those three years i became acutely aware of jordan's problems because of the fact it's I, i hope this is still accurate the fourth scarcest water country in the world um, and, and it's largely due to, you know, its situation next to Israel. And of course, you've got the inherent both cooperative and confrontational aspects of, of Arab and, and Israeli relations in that part of the world. And now you add something as as. Sensitive to people as as scarcity of water, which may become acute in the growing years. And if, you're, if you just live there, you see it with your own eyes. You see the Dead Sea uh, shrinking every year. You see uh, the 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 consequences of uh, irrigation in the Israeli side and the Dust Bowl on the on the Jordanian side. And you and you and you start thinking of Africa. You start thinking of Asia and other parts of the world where the, these disputes. Will become determinative I, I might add that you know the King of Jordan has done a remarkable job of staying power as a ruler despite mm. having some of the most unique challenges in the world. Largely dealing with essential needs of people. I mean, things like you know, when the oil pro- the oil prices go up of cooking oil, there's there are riots not riots, but demonstrations. So it's you can pick out countries like that to use as your example. But here's what I would like you to picture, Chris. Picture mm. picture presidents getting a daily presidential briefing book which we use in the United States every day, the president, vice president, and senior policymakers get this book from the director of national intelligence. And in that book, it's got a significant amount of developments that are occurring in the global security space related to climate induced risks and problems. So they can read for themselves the trends that are occurring in the world here. Mm. So you can begin to anticipate, when does this come to a head? And what does the United States in our case need to be prepared to think and do is aid is the aid we need to provide that to perhaps head off a failed state or a state that's in crisis. Should that, is that due now? Should we make that mm. investment now Do can we, do we have another year before we start thinking of it? Should we start dialogues now with other countries to try to solve problems that w- will become much bigger problems? Now the context here is always for intelligence. Anyway, it's the context must should be always, some sort of national security and global stability-related you know, consequence when we get involved.
1: Mm, definitely. Well, you mentioned failed states, and sadly, traditionally, failed states tend to be the breeding ground of terrorism.
2: That's correct. So I think one of the—I've already made an allusion to—I could see ECHO or far-right national terrorism already going after things like new forms of weapons to to, uh, to gain that respect. It's not my, my world is not respect that they think they should be accorded or, or emulate the power of a state. Can you imagine groups going after nuclear facilities to try to sabotage them to cause environmental catastrophes in some cases? Can you imagine, um, when a failed state crashes, what it's going to do, Another a new failed state emerges because of some of these problems, say, related to climate change, exacerbating tendencies that already exist, and suddenly we're dealing with places where we're going to see new forms of terrorism uh, avenues or areas where proliferation make when i mean when i mean proliferation i mean classic uh, nuclear biological chemical weapons mm. and uh, military hardware in itself type type proliferation activity that does destabilize countries and regions
1: Yeah, Can you talk to us then about how climate change has been considered by the U.S. intelligence services and U.S. government over the years, and also talk a bit about your efforts to make progress on this issue?
2: It really doesn't have a very uh, noble history or a proud history. (laughs) Uh, I'll start with that. Um, I, I don't mean by saying that to discredit or impugn the few individuals I've known over the years that really devoted themselves to this in a very remarkable way, but let's just face facts. There there has n- been no real commitment of significant U.S. intelligence resources or capabilities or leadership interest or priority to climate change ever, okay? So if you go back into the 1990s during the Clinton-Gore years, uh, I was in Moscow in the early 90s when we actually had a, uh, I, I don't know how, I guess I would characterize it as a politically uh, Directed uh engagement with Russian intelligence on climate mm. change mainly for the mm. purpose of exchanging satellite imagery okay at that time satellite imagery was still you know very sensitive and secret, and nowadays you get better stuff commercially than we had access to in intelligence back in those days, so that's been largely overcome by events but the the precedent is important because it was the first time when you have two old enemies the k g b and the CIA, actually sitting around a table talking about cooperation on, on climate change, uh, uh, mainly driven by Al Gore, and it was called the Gore-Cherner-Meriden uh, Initiative. Later at, at DOE, I, I created something called the Energy Environmental Security Directorate to with really only one purpose, with a modest amount of money, uh, seed money, I'd call it, just to explore Uh, how DOE and intelligence community, because I I, I was dual-hatted, I I reported directly to the Secretary of Energy and I reported to the Director of National Intelligence as the head of intelligence, just to study what the potential role, if there should be a role for the U.S. intelligence community and what that role should be. And that was cast in the context of, I believe it's still the only intelligence community assessment on climate change. It was called the National Intelligence Assessment, the NIA uh, which I went to Congress to defend. It was a community product of all, all agencies. Uh, unfortunately, for some silly reason, it was made secret, which was a big mistake, I feel. And we went. I went with the head of analysis at the in, at the DNI level, Director of National Intelligence, Tom Fingar, who's now at Stanford. Great, great man, great analyst. And we defended it, so to speak. With and that would be what I would showcase from this period, which would be relentless negative political division over this between the republicans and democrats to the point where it was so it was so divisive between no big shock there right divisive between the republicans and democrats this was in 2008 by the way so it's it's long before our current problems but it's it was it was so disillusioning for me and i describe mm-hmm. in my memoir a scene where i'm with the members of the house and senate select committees on intelligence trying to justify this very small effort and i i was essentially bribed to do away with it and i refused to do it and at that point my my secretary of energy stood behind me and uh republican appointee and everything else but he he was he was a very honorable man and he believed that we should do this and i emphasized to him when I was thanking him for his support and of course he had the president's ear. Uh, and, and, uh, so it stood while I was there and I said, you know, what people don't understand is I haven't made any predetermined decisions as to where this is going to go. It's not, it is not partisan, but the most important thing is we would be, it would be, it's our duty to do this as intelligence officers. If we fail to do this, we're derelict in our duties. And that's the way I still feel about it. So 12 years later, I still feel we've been derelict in our duties in the U.S. intelligence community. And for that matter, most other, I think, countries around the world, Though it's not my job to judge them. (laughs) But in my own community, I say, you know, we need to stand up and do a, a, a study, a short study, a few months, determine exactly what we need to do, how much, what it would take, what the capabilities, what are the specific mission areas we want to develop, and what would be our specific outcomes to make a contribution, and then present that to our intelligence community leadership and ultimately to the White House, probably someone like John Kerry, who's President Biden's main climate guru in the White House, and present it to them as our contribution to the national security problems of climate change yeah, thank
1: you for that. So why would the intelligence community be best set to help the us government and possibly world governments tackle climate change?
2: Well, that's a great question. it's it's actually whether people ask it or not. I've given this presentation in lots of places. and the most skeptical audience i I for example, I gave it to an international a small group, maybe twenty, Uh, less than 20 people of international intelligence officers uh, from all over the world actually. And, and there's a lot of, and they were the most skeptical of of all the Mm. audiences. (laughs) So uh, the reason for it is they, they question the premise that there is a unique value added that, that let's not, let's not, Distract ourselves from classical—I would call them—classical intelligence work to do this. I say, well, first of all, I agree with you. If you can make that case, then I, I then I respectfully withdraw, you know, my my pleas. But but I've looked at that pretty hard, and then we have a long discussion, and I win some over, and I don't win over others. But the the, the essence of the argument is, what is our unique value added? What can we? So I I just would briefly list, and then we get long discussions. Our liaison connections, our, our 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 emphasis on providing information that that produces better policy in U.S. government on national security related subjects. There's really no one else that does this other than intelligence in the U.S. community. Uh, it's not again questioning the science role or providing the science or providing action that's in the health communities or these other areas. It's specifically providing rigorous analysis through the four aspects of intelligence that are the essence of intelligence, which is set a priority, uh, go collect the information. Now, it doesn't mean secret information. Go collect the relevant information to fulfill that priority. Analyze it using a customized tradecraft, analytical tradecraft with great rigor, and then finding the right dissemination mechanisms. So you could run a conference around breaking those four things down on climate change and analyzing and and trying to assess in great detail. For just to take the last one, take uh, dissemination, is dissemination should find ways, how do you do it globally? Well, we have these things we call stations around the world that's uniquely a CIA. But when I say CIA, I also mean department of state because they generally aren't embassies i mean department of defense because they generally have attachés around the world i mean mm-hmm. other agencies that are part of what we call the country team so we have the ability to rapidly disseminate in near real time our work what we're doing that's unique in the us government we just don't fully utilize it mm-hmm. so that's on that side and then as i said earlier in in our conversation develop the right approaches to Sharing burden. So, is it multilateral? Is it bilateral? It's going to be a combination of various mechanisms. Again, we have these, you know, we started off the questioning by talking about World War II to today. Well, let's not throw away everything we've built since World War II. The structure, the edifice of this foundation of great intelligence is based on person to person contact it's based on professional trade craft it's based on having mortar and brick around the world we can go to to do it but we just don't use those things for this right now so what i'm what I'm, the essence of what i'm advocating is an adaptation of all these things to take this seriously and really go after it.
1: Why has it been hard for the intelligence community to see climate change as a national security threat? Because it seems very clear to you, but it seems a lot of decision makers don't seem to be sort of seeing it that way.
2: I think first there's a fear of it'll distract us from mm. whether it's Iran, Russia, China, other priorities. My quick response to that is, well, they're not even the same kind of resources and capabilities, so don't worry. <laughs> along, along with a little cautionary, maybe... Uh, a, a judgment or, or or at least a, a wake-up call. Uh, or, or haven't we really got it? You know, I've always liked to say tongue-in-cheek, I'll stress tongue-in-cheek. We have m- probably more analysts following the Iranian nuclear program than there are people in the nuclear program. So, I mean, <laughs> at some point you need to perhaps take a look at you know, what you're devoting all your resources. I think the second mm. has been the politics of it have, have been mm. very difficult because you have, there's support for doing nothing. I mean, I hate to say that. A third has been institutional risk aversion, I call it. Uh, This always gets everybody grimacing when I say it to my colleagues, but I'm not, I'm so proud of us as a community and our accomplishments, but I will say that we're never good when we sit on our laurels, rest on our laurels, or when we fail to be pushed into something because we're afraid we don't know what we're doing or how to do it. We're not real good on imagination and creativity. We are, we have some individuals who are outstanding, but institutionally we're like every organization and you can't have an intelligence agency that's, Excellent, outstanding, if it's not highly imagined and creative and, and, and really willing to take big risks, which means spectacular failures, misses <laughs> and all the rest. Yeah. And over the years, yeah. organizations just become as they mature in particular they just become more risk averse in this fundamental way of not being very imaginative and creative. So a lot of what I try to offer, and I'm not saying I'm the most creative person in the world or imagination imaginative, but I do like to say, you know, picture the future, you know, think, think a little bit about the next 20, 30 and not just 10 years, five, we we think of long-term forecasting. America is maybe mm-hmm. one of the worst countries in the world projecting long term threats, maybe the worst because we're such a today society Everything's social media speed and timing and if it's not done today and tomorrow it's like irrelevant we that's the way we conduct our business if it's not in our inbox we have pay no attention to it we don't we don't really do a lot of long-term research and development because all our money is meant to be spent in a year or two cycles so on this you got to really get yourself out of that you got to get yourself out of your inbox out of your social media pace, uh, Mm -hmm. base pace. And you got to really think about the world. What is our world going to look like in 50 years? And how do we prepare now for it? How do you prepare for this world uh, the problems we're gonna, going to confront. Uh, and then are we just going to experience all that with shock and awe and wonder, strategic surprise every time something big happens we hadn't anticipated? Or are you going to fundamental at least put it, I used to say with the WMD, um, I, I used to get very exasperated by people who said, well, well, how do you expect us to solve this problem? I said, well, if you can give me the name of three people, I'll be happy. And they look on it because this is hard to do, actually. Who's in charge in the White House? Who's in charge at the highest level of our national security community, meaning our DNI? And who's in charge operationally operationally in the CIA, which still remains our most action-oriented intelligence entity in the U.S. government? If you can give me good names at those three levels, or any name. See, so, Mm. so the first challenge is generally they can't give you a name because there's nobody in charge then if they give you a name and it's not a good name, it doesn't matter to me how many people you say are on it or how much money you're spending. And that's kind of what I think we are in climate change. I'm not presumptuous enough to sit here talking to you, Chris, and say, I've got the answers. I know how we should do this. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you, if you tell me the right person at those levels who can think through the policy, strategic, and ultimately operational aspects of the problem, then I'll be confident in my grandchildren and other grandchildren around the world having somebody on it because right now there's nobody on it
1: mm, it needs to be i had a question about cultural changes but i kind of feel like you've answered that i mean is there anything you would add as recommendations for kind of cultural changes in the u.s intelligence services
2: Well, there, there are lots of little, I I like to go through this in a more helpful tactical way when I actually Mm. talk to people who might be interested in what I think is where I see the, this is easy to do when you've been out of something for a while. I call it like the armchair, being an armchair sports critic, right? (laughs) You see the people in the field and, and you see, so it's so easy for you to see how, but it's especially, you know, you're prone to do that if you did something like I did for so many years and now you've been distant from, for a while. And frankly, a lot, most of my other priorities have moved on from, from intelligence related subject so i feel like it puts me in maybe a position i can be helpful but with that long you know wind up i'd say the main thing is think about the things in your culture that are impediments to to being outstanding, which means you cannot, you have to constantly question every day Mm. your mission. Mm. You have to Mm. question how you've dedicated your resource. I I call it zero basing every day where you've put your people, your money, your priorities. Um, Are you getting your bang for your buck? Are you doing the most important thing? There's a tendency in bureaucracies to not do many important things because they're too hard. Mm. So part of the climate change thing is it's not defined. So people are lazy about defining it or resistant to even looking at it. And then if they do, they're afraid they can't do it or they don't have the capability. Because it's rare to see leaders. So it boils down, the best question, answer to your question is we need really strong leadership. Strong leadership mm. meaning with a lot of integrity, integrity meaning willing to look at truth to power, say truth to power, look, find the imagin- imaginative people, creative people, do what it takes to keep them in organizations where they themselves are not very organizationally friendly and organizations are not generally friendly to them. I, I, I do a whole series. It's still one of the things that fascinates me the most about intelligence, about what we call groupthink, where you get a group of people you know, who are pushed towards conformity. The entire system pushes them towards that. Consensus is what we strive for. So even when we produce, let's say, a paper on the Iranian nuclear program with 16 or 17 agencies contributing to it, the essence of the effort is to try to get consensus. And and we don't always, which is then a good thing, because then people can put meaningful differences down that might define areas that were either weak or wrong. Wrong. That's the important thing where we're wrong. Mm. And Mm. but that's a hard (laughs) process because we're so Mm. driven. Uh, in organizations, so I'd say be very aware of the bureaucratic kind of things that hold you back. Constantly challenge your culture. Get good leaders, good strong leaders who push you into the future, and not try to excel at the present. And and those are some of the things I think that uh, are hard to do because they're they're not things you could you could put on a you know a, a McKinsey list of things you need to do and change an organization because it's n- almost never reforming the organization if if someone comes to me and says we're going to do a study of how we set up the organization for this i'd say well that's absolutely not what you need <laughs> you need to know what you want to do and what what specific outcomes are you going for and then tailor something in terms of the methodology and structure that fits that yeah
1: is there an opportunity for the intelligence services to sort of work with big tech companies or even the private sector to help on this issue
2: yes so uh i went to harvard in 2009 i've been either a director or senior fellow there for now for this my 12th year and the single most important lesson learned and i've had so many of my old friends and colleagues ask me what have you learned up there is just how much of our real, the knowledge we need to solve major issues in national security today are in the private sector or academia, not in the, behind the four walls and and vaults that we use to operate out of. And and that so much of this information is not secret. And that so many of the world's best experts on, on a given subject are no longer government workers. And so if, if we don't solve this problem, of tapping more effectively into the outside world, and we keep our analysts and our operators behind closed doors, and worry more about how we continue to do espionage like we did in the Cold War than we do about solving problems. We're dead. We're going to we're mm. going to die a slow death. Uh, mm. And we we have traditionally the USA, for example, worked exceptionally well with our private sector. Um, the private sector has made innumerable contributions. Uh, to U.S. national security, often at great risk to their corporate equities uh, over the years. And and some of those have been detailed and many have not. That's usually a function of, frankly, very courageous and patriotic uh, CEOs and, and others, people in organizations that see themselves as Americans and not just out to make money. Uh, so we have to tap into that. And then we need to tap into academia, which intelligence has always had a kind of very schizophrenic attitude towards. On the one hand, you know, multiple personalities. We don't know whether we want to. You know, the worst thing we can do is is. Uh, as I always like to say, is exploit academia for intelligence purposes because we need to maintain our credibility. So when you go to academics and say we need your help the last thing they don't remember is the time when we would try to recruit a, a professor or a staff person or, or a student, uh, and which, which is not something that typically happens by the way, but it's just mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. where trust, in all these things, you're asking me, trust is such an important ingredient.
1: Definitely. Well, on that topic of trust, there are obviously many established environmental groups such as Greenpeace who've been doing research and campaigning on climate change for a very long time. Do you think there's any potential the intelligence community could work with those kind of groups?
2: It's funny you ask that because I do. I, I've, I've, always, I've always wanted to have a conversation with uh, Greenpeace specifically when they would do something like post routes of uh, French. Uh, french uh, transportation of nuclear materials across europe you know because they wanted to draw attention to dangerous materials I so, well, you know, I wanted to ask them personally, you know, and my imagination, imaginary conversation as, as CIA, not not trying to hide mm. who I am. You know, do you really think it's a good idea to call attention to this so that terrorists hijack it and, or, mm. or, you know, somebody blows it up and we've got a major, mm. we've got the very thing you're most worried about. And, and I've, I've had the same imaginary conversation with uh, heads of organized crime groups where, I, where I've asked them uh, or said to them you know i just want to make something clear if your group is ever implicated in transporting uh, getting involved in a smuggling network of uh, nuclear usable weapons usable ma- nuclear materials and we track it down we're not, we're going to take apart your group every person in the group and you're going to wish you never existed uh, mm. I'd be, i think they get that you know I, I i so i guess the confluence of interest is the question you raise where there is a potential confluence of interest in ways we would not have imagined in what I call the old world. Isn't it worth trying to, to create connections and try, at least see? I, I've done that mm-hmm. my whole life. I was in Russia in the crazy 90s, I call them, when, when we worked together, US CIA and, say, the FSB, the internal service, or the S- external service, the SVRR. We worked together uh, on on occasional basis in remarkable ways. And I had remember having a, a utterly fascinating conversation with Yevgeny Primakov, who at the time was the head of the SVR. One-on-one, we'd meet about once a week. And uh, he proposed this incredibly imaginative, bold joint initiative between our two services. In fact, I was so sort of taken aback in a good way that Mm. that that uh you know i I enthusiastically wrote this whole thing up to washington and sent it in and said this is it this is he's come up with he's not even really in he's not as most people would know obviously primakov was not an intelligence officer career wise he was a he was a diplomat he was an emissary often to iraq and other countries and and he came up with this marvelous idea because he was very creative and bold and of course, Washington sent me a cable said, don't ever send us anything like this again. <laughs> you oh, <know>? my goodness. <laughs> 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 That's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: maybe uh, maybe this is a good segue into this. I've got a slightly darker question. I may be wrong, but the world is sort of feeling a little bit less open to international cooperation these days. I mean, we've had uh, in the UK isolationist policies like Brexit. Obviously, in the US, you've had the rise of Trump and isolationism. And we have growing state rivalries between the USA, China, and Russia. Is there a potential that isolationism could get in the way of progress on climate change?
2: Well, I think that's a very astute observation. It's already Happening, so it's mm. it's not really a potential. It's a question of how we already overcome it. And mm. the number one ingredient is is leadership. Frankly, I, I'd like to think we can find that leadership, that sort of forward leaning, uh, visionary. Vision is something I use all the time. I in, a, in a, on a on a on a different but related note, you know, uh, somebody asked me recently what I, what I thought it would take to. Get U.S. Russian relations out of this cynical nosedive, particularly after Navalny, which is a horrible, horrible thing. Mm, um, mm. And and how do we even address you know some forms of cooperation that are in both countries' interest? I said really the only way I can think of it, and this applies, I think, to where we are in the world right now. What we need in the biggest, the most macro sense uh, of your of your question, we we need to rediscover you know things, uh, leadership, which would mean Biden would, for example. A form a vision of a different kind of relationship i don't I don't even you know I have my own sort of ideas, but I haven't put that together. He would need to do it. He's the only person in the u s establishment along with Putin, who could drive this forward and it would start with a vision like Reagan had with Gorbachev that's it mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. they they recognized the world was a Reagan and Gorbachev, for whatever else one how it assesses that period of saw the world where it was headed. And, and, mm. and, and tried to position themselves at that crossroads and, and did. And I think, you know, we, we have the same questions on China. Where are we right now? Confrontation, again, this idea of zero-sum game, which always comes up in the U.S.-China, U.S.-Russia context. Mm. I say, well, we need maybe a Nixon and Mao moment. We, we need somebody re redefine the reshape, the, have a vision of a different relationship, as fundamental as those historical things are, because I think the world is fundamentally as different. For example, I I used to say this to many of my Russian uh, colleagues, uh, you know, and and I wasn't meant, I never meant to preach with them. I wanted to have discussions because their views were were often uh, added much to what I was thinking. Don't you agree as a starting point for a discussion that there's actually more things that that unite us in interest terms of interest than there are that separate us, whether it's WMD, whether it's terrorism, whether it's arms control, whether it's climate change, and that we have these problems that we can't get around, whether it's Ukraine or Navalny or you know, uh, but we can't become hostage to cynicism or the problems that divide us. We have to find a way to work both both channels, and we have an early test here in the United States with the new administration where biden's declared vision as i understand it to this point is to pursue a two-track approach with all of countries but particularly those two where we cooperate where we can and we confront and so far all we've seen is really the confrontational track because mm-hmm. and we're going to fight in that track now the question now is can we fight bitterly in that track and develop Mechanisms and communication channels for better cooperation, as well, or whether mm. those are seen as mutually exclusive. And I will say, for the last twelve years, at least in U.S.-Russian relations, um, we have generally taken the approach that they're mutually exclusive; that we have to choose cooperation or confrontation. That has mm. to stop, or we're not going to mm. get beyond the point you describe, where we can't we can't find a way to address the sort of cynical pathway we're on yeah
1: i mean i'm worried about how climate change can be weaponized by a competitor country and they might just ignore the international side of it and say well this is going to benefit us is that a risk do you think yeah can they could the country get away with that of course
2: yeah yeah i i, I would use the example i I won't use his name because i, mm. I want i didn't clear it with him but i i was meeting with a very very eminent scientist who has had decades long. Uh, contacts with the russians and chinese on climate change so and he said the amazing thing is the experts are in almost complete agreement on the nature of the threat and the problem and risks we face so i said that's really good news i said so i raised the very question you just raised so are we going to use it for confrontation or cooperation or for competition or cooperation he said well it'll be both it'll be both there's no question that that in, but whether it's individual companies or states pursuing, we're seeing with the vaccines, for example, right? Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's definitely a part of what you're describing. But here's here was his hopeful comment, and I, I love this season on hopefulness <laughs> when I can. <laughs> he said, however, he said, uh, the, the problem is emerging f- into the light so rapidly that it won't be as long as we think it will be be now before they realize we're all in deep shit, so to speak, mm-hmm. and, and we better do something right now. And, and he says, so that will hasten the, the process of acknowledging the nature of the problem we face will come much faster, he said. And then he used ex- a few examples for both countries, in so, and, and particular in China. It's hit China a lot faster already than it's hit, say, the United States. Mm. Uh, and in Russia you could see the trade-offs in the Arctic but how about the Siberian forest fires or you know some of the ch- per- changes to the you, we just saw the whole world got to see if they wanted to watch him Putin and the in Siberia having a nice week mm. I think he genuinely loves that sort of stuff well what's it going to look like there in 50 years yeah uh, I think they're worried about it I think the short-term bias if you want to call it that or weakness in policy is to favor the immediate, gains of economic and otherwise but the Mm. but the long term will hit us much faster than long term it's going to hit us even in the next few years
1: yeah i've been accused of being cynical by my wife Um, (laughs) and uh, i just want to ask you is there any hope for bilateral cooperation should we be hopeful that we can find a solution to this problem yes
2: yes yes <laughs> so as i like to say I, um, the most the one of the things i like to do the most these days is is talk to even if it's just an open discussion young people whether they're harvard students or young officers in the intelligence or military worlds and i say look when you look at me i hope you come to you know say two conclusions at least in my pers- my approach to things one is i started out as an idealist i'm even more idealistic now so nothing of 30 something years in government is you know sort of created uh, a a cynical you know person and secondly i'm even more amazed today than i've ever been by the capabilities we offer most of which is our human capital really it's it, the 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 capability the, the the talent level the the quality of workforces we have is is amazing where we generally lack is more in the leadership and direction and mm. bureaucracy aspects but the quality of people we have is my hope to answer your question is that that we can. It's going to take, you know, real leaders emerging at all levels, not just at the high level driving cooperation, say, at the national level, but young officers, young people who are demanding change. You're, you, there's got to be a moment where the youth that are driving a lot of the protests and, and say, rebelliousness against uh, the the status quo and the the global system that they see is not moving an inch, and it's not really uh, that they're going. They're going to demand, change, especially when generational changes. Are, now that's a long time; that's too long to wait. But I often use this example. Uh, we're going to see already. I see my own kids and grandkids a different attitude about the world, different concerns than I had. They're the they're the litmus test for me that my general instincts are on of the way I felt about the world in the '60s and '70s. They're now looking at the world of the twenty twenties and twenty thirties in a totally different light. Mm, mm,
1: thank you. Yeah, it seems to be working now. Cool. Sorry about that. Had a slight problem there. Um. Right. Uh, what was my last question? So, thank you so much for that, Rolf. Um. I we're going to wrap up, but uh, I just want to ask you if there's anything else you'd like to add before we do wrap up today.
2: I do get some encouragement. Um. I've had some encouragement in the last. 2 years say that there is a different attitude emerging that's that's causing me to be more hopeful on action finally this is maybe an issue where it just, it was an issue before it's, that was the, that was the name of the chapter of the book in my memoir. I called before it's time. Um, when I described a little of this, I didn't want to get too heavy into it because I felt that's exactly what I felt when I walked away and went to the middle East was okay. Well, people weren't ready for this politically. And, and even in the intelligence world, uh, at that time, I think we might be almost there. So there, you know, I'm pushing, um, through my limited means, you know, I know that having someone like Carrie in the White House, I take is being hugely significant because you have that one name now, right? <laughs> you, have, you have at least the top ed name that we don't yeah. have the person yet and the, the second name. Which uh, you know, in fact, I, I sometimes annoy people because they say, "Well, what do you give us your set of recommendations for our WMD?" Not that they would take them, or you know, but just to hear them. And I always just say, "Give me the three names." Then I'll, if you if you do those, and then come back to me, I'll tell you what other stuff you need to do. Because most of what else I'd say, and this certainly applies to climate change, would be things I would want those three people to formulate. And if you've got the right people, uh, then I would have more confidence that you've. Cared enough to at least put someone in charge. When I at the there's a kind of very uh, awkward chapter. I call I almost didn't write it. Were in my book where I talked about my my last experience with WMD was in the Bush administration, two thousand eight, when he was transferring it over to Obama, and, uh, and I, he he hadn't got to know me at, by this point. So we had another meeting in July or something, and he said do these things, and they weren't done. And so at that time, Sam Bobman, who's the Secretary of Energy, was pushing me for, tell me when they're done. Tell me when they're done. I want to go to the president. If you, they don't do it, I'm not going to put up with this. And uh, you know they weren't done. So in, come around October, um, he said, okay, I want a memo. Give me a memo. I'm going to give it to the president. Uh, so I did. I wrote a two-page memo, basically coming up with this three-name Thing saying, Mr. President, they didn't do what you said. And, you know, I wouldn't accept anything they said at this point unless they Mm. could at least tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) There was a huge uproar, huge uproar. I didn't really care. I was going to, I knew at that point, I would have said it anyway if I were staying. I mean, just to be clear, but I was about, I was already aware that I was heading up to Harvard at this point. And, and uh, so, uh, so it boils down. I'm sitting in, I won't say with whom, very senior person, one of the top three or four people in the U.S. intelligence community. And we're talking about this. And uh, he says to me, well, I'm just really upset with you for this. Why didn't you come to me? I said, Well, I did. I sent you an email. I warned you. That I warned you. I, n- I would never blindside you know anybody. That's never my intention. So I said, I warned you. I was going. I didn't really think you were serious. You're going to do this. And then you know, I said, Well, you should, probably should take it seriously. I said, you know. And and at that point, he goes, Well, what do you want me to do? Just tell me now what you want me to do so I can get this off my back. I said, Give me your name. Who in CIA is in charge? So he gets, he turns all red. He's very upset with me. And he says, Well, do you have a name? So I t- took a piece of paper. This was not helpful to our over, took a piece of paper out with three or four names on it and I handed it to him. I said, I thought you might ask me that because I happen to know there's not a name. There's nobody in charge. So I'm, here it is. I'll make your job easy for you. So that was sort of ended the meeting on a say professional but quiet note. Mm. And they never did come up with the name. And, and, you know, it's, it's a very telling thing, you know, and and I've said to people since, I think that is one of the lingering things I never learned about, about my business is why is it so hard to do easy things? This is not a hard problem, Chris. This is, this is put, you know, I'm asking you to divert. Precious resources, critical things that are doing incredibly important things. Lots of money, lots of people. It was never the problem with WMD. I started out my career in in, in government, large as a well as an army officer. As I said, and and uh, in four years or whatever, I was an army captain with about 150 people in an armored cavalry troop we call it which is a company size element large company 150 people i'd, I'd be happy with 150 people doing wmd work the right people the right i'd, I'd probably be happy i don't know how many people we need when i say that i'm just trying to get ballparky here i i'd be happy with 150 people dedicated to vote the i'm not happy when you tell me there's an analyst in charge in cia and he <laughs> or she does this along with their other four things or a little team of five yeah. it's not serious you see what i'm saying yeah. We've always chosen the sort of deceptive response to things like this where we, you know we do something and we say it honestly but it's not really mm. what we say it is. So mm. you go to we do this sometimes with with, with uh, you know when Congress asks an question uncomfortable question how many Arabists do you have patrolling uh, you know in the Middle East right now doing classic work so we know what's we can predict the next Arab Spring? Mm. They ask that question, but that's not the real question. The real question is how, what kind of insight do we have in what's going on in the high levels in the Middle East? That's the question. Mm. Not how many Arabists we have? They ask that mm. question because CIA can come back and say we got these and impress everybody with all these people that are in training to take Arabic. It's mm. not the answer to the question. So it's the same thing with climate change or WMD. Those kinds of answers are typical answers we give. We give answers. We used to call them man hours. How many man hours are we doing? now would be like human hours or something. I don't know. Mm. What it would be. Mm. That's not the answer to the question. It doesn't matter matter. matter how many man hours we got devoted. No no good corporation that puts out top products would go about measuring its effort. Mm. They measure its productivity, its results. In the end of the day, are we able to uniquely give the president a presidential daily briefing with the best information intelligence can obtain on global national security threats caused by climate change now and projecting out in the future? that's the measurement. You can picture that. You can picture the potential products. You can almost write them in your mind. So then you translate that into the capabilities you need, whether you ex- those capabilities exist today or whether you need to go out and get them. Then you can assess the cost. Then you, not just in terms of the price but price tag, but in terms of what you can't do maybe. Because the other thing I would never let the intelligence community get away with if I were overs- <laughs> oversight <laughs> would be, you know, the, we've got too many things to do. We can't add that to our list. Mm. That is the laziest response I've ever heard to any question, frankly. Mm. And it's typically an answer you hear. And instead of fundamentally reassessing how we're going about doing our business, we say, we've said publicly, I've heard testimony, we can't predict events. We're not soothsayers. We're not, you know, we, we can't, anyone who expects us to be able to predict the future is overestimating what we're capable of doing. My reaction to that is depends on the reason for that (laughs) if the problem is so difficult so complex which i don't i would maintain because i'm proud enough to say this in in our work that there's no problem too complex to break down and i mean that's what i learned in doe above all you you use complex modeling use you get better you don't solve it you don't crack it you don't say "On three weeks from now on this date this is what this plane's going down or whatever no you can't do that but you got to be able to break Predict trends in, analysis, in intelligence. Yeah. You got to be able to establish, which we lost in these three events, successively, we lost our confidence that we could reestablish a semblance of traditional foresight and early warning that intelligence was founded to do. That's the essence of giving the president a decision advantage, some appreciation of future risks and events that may occur because of those risks. Can you call the day and the event precisely? No, of course not. But you've got to be able to instill in your leaders uh, enough awareness of problems that they're not shocked and surprised and unprepared to deal with them as they emerge, and more importantly, in the follow-up, in the response to the problem. So in the case of climate change or WMD, it means you've got the capabilities established within the government that are, res- are responding to it and that would respond if there was a crisis or an event that would challenge your entire system. That's what essence of what I've been saying throughout our, our interview, Chris, is that's what we need here. That's why intelligence has to be in the picture. Yeah. Where can
1: listeners sort of find out more about you and your work and kind of connect with you?
2: Well, googling me helps. the uh, The Harvard site, Belfer Center, has still my, all my a lot of my old uh, work and mm. uh, my bio uh, listed on the Belfer Center at Harvard mm. University. Uh, it's all up there. I'm still a senior fellow, as I said. Um, then, then you know, my memoirs. I mean, I, I hate to do. It, I'm not peddling my memoir, but it's the best source of kind of the whole story, you know, of, of where I've been and what I think about. And what I, mm. what I tried to do in it in, in a nutshell is, well, it's more a religious book or a faith-based book than it is about. So the high, the highest level of say attention in the book is my faith. And and then I'd say it's philosophy, but when you get into philosophy, uh, it touches on so many of the things we've discussed because it mm. gets into say, justifying or repudiating or evaluating all the work that the intelligence part of the book is really about. And war stories to hopefully, and I wasn't going to write a memoir, but hopefully to to describe something more important than the story itself for the work. It's, it's certainly not a here's about me book, because I wasn't going to write a celebration of myself book. And if it, I don't think it comes across that way to anybody uh, who reads it <laughs> at all. But that was the the reason why. And so when you get into uh, some of the things in the uh, DOE, or, I tell the story of what we started out the, our discussion today with, which is mm-hmm. for moving from a world where it's about classical espionage and spies who saved the world, like Penkovsky, or, or you know, uh, which was my life and my work. Mm-hmm. And I got in the mm-hmm. middle of Moles and Aldrich Chains and Robert. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm stuck in the middle of all that. Served in Moscow in the Cold War twice, you know, so that's all there, but that's my world until it's not. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.